Like the rest of us, the extreme weather events this year loomed large over Jim Capsis' daily life. And he really felt that this summer when a tornado warning hit the eastern shore of Maryland, where he was spending time with his family. And I'm, I'm tucking in my, my nephew and my niece and the three girls. And it's, it's now dark. It's like 8 o'clock, 8.15 at night. And I hear something hit the window of the kid's bedroom. And then I hear something else hit the window. And I, I realize that what I'm hearing is debris. He's also felt it at his job leading the ad hoc group when a call with utility executives in New York was disturbed by a major storm. And so the guy who was organizing called me. He's like, uh, hey, Jim, I'm so sorry. But all the CEOs are on the phone with their assistants trying to figure out how the heck they're going to get home because New York is experiencing the single largest flood in the last 100 years, like right now. And these experiences have made Jim question if utilities are actually prepared for more frequent and increasingly intense weather in the future. What to do about it, I think, is what remains to be right determined. And I don't think utilities, regulators, investors, or advocates have figured out what they should be doing to prepare. A growing group of startups were more than ready to provide solutions, but they struggled to break into the space. They needed help figuring out a business model that works in a unique market that is the utility industry. His response, a new company, the Ad Hoc Group, founded in 2016 with the goal of helping those newcomers succeed. Through their extensive work helping climate tech startups navigate the highly regulated world of utilities, Jim knows where most companies in this space are lacking strategy-wise. So we help them on the policy. We help them figure out how to scale their sales and their revenue, like taking the policy and regulatory dynamics and insight as, as part of that. A core part of that process is getting their clients to the point where ad hoc's help is no longer needed. And we're going to do the work for them with them. We're going to teach them how to do the work. And then over time, we are going to help them hire full-time staff, additional full-time staff. We will support them. And then we will graduate them because they will no longer need us anymore. This is With Great Power, a show about the people building the future grid today. I'm Brad Langley. Some people say utilities are slow to change, they don't innovate fast enough. And while it might not always seem like the most cutting-edge industry, there are lots of really smart people working really hard to make the grid cleaner, more reliable, and customer-centric. This week, I'm speaking with Jim Capsis, CEO and founder of the Ad Hoc Group. Hey, it's Brad. As a listener to With Great Power, you know that electrification is a primary pathway to decarbonize our economy. As we continue shifting to carbon-free energy sources, more end uses are transitioning from fossil fuels to running on clean electricity. From EVs to heat pumps for buildings and everything in between, electrification trends are on the rise. But what does this all mean for you? Whether you're a policymaker, business leader, or individual, electrification is something you really need to know more about. And so I have just a show for you. It's called Electrify This, a podcast from Energy Innovation, which is entering its fourth season with each episode diving into the people and technologies electrifying our lives. Host Sarah Baldwin connects with national and global experts to explore the issues underpinning the shift to electrified transportation, buildings, and industry. So tune in to hear from a range of experts, federal policy leaders, public health experts, chefs, and real estate agents about the regulatory and market issues of electrification and even what you can do to electrify your life. Listen to Electrify This on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. And tell them Brad sent you. 
Jim brings with him a wealth of knowledge in both policy and business that's invaluable for any startup looking for ad hoc's guidance. After a few roles in government, including a stint as the Energy and Climate Advisor for the Department of the Treasury, he joined Opower as a Senior Director of Market Development and Strategy three years into the company's founding. For him, innovation is the name of the game, and he's doing all he can to enable that. If we don't successfully get startups to become viable businesses, we're not going to actually be able to address the climate challenges, whether that's about reducing emissions or making the grid more resilient. Like, we need them to succeed, and if they don't have the appropriate help from firms like ours, they're going to go out of business. They're not going to be successful. Change is a big driver for Jim, both personally and professionally. So I asked him to take me back to the moment when he made a massive change, the choice he made to leave O-Power and start the ad hoc group. I realized, one, that I, I loved my O-Power time, but when you do one thing for a long time, Sometimes you real, at least for me at least, you realize that like I want to see what else is out there, and I am a pretty intellectually curious person, and I think at heart a generalist, and I didn't want to spend the next six years only focused on demand side management, only on energy efficiency, because there's just so much we have to do, and I want to learn about it. I, I want to affect change. I want to, but I also want to learn and get smarter because I care, and so. The idea was, can I take this experience from O-Power that was successful, and can I take those learnings, and can I come up with a business approach to help that next wave of startups and founders figure out how to be even more successful than we were at O-Power? And that just felt exciting to me. And like a good startup founder, I hope myself, putting myself in that category, I went and I talked to customers. I talked to venture capital firms and I said, Hey, what do you think of this idea? And I got validation that this was a good idea. And the ultimate validation was getting people to sign contracts with us to, to support them. And I messed around for a couple of years, but it was mostly my, by myself trying to figure out, do I really want to do this? Is the market really here? And then hired my first full-time team member, Ian Reinhardt, uh, almost four years ago, to the you know to, to the day today, um, late uh, 2019, and my second person's on March 1st, 2020. Which, by the way, nothing was happening on March 1st, 2020. If you remember, uh, it was literally the beginning of COVID, and she's in New York, and I saw her once in person, and then didn't see her again for two years in person. Uh, so we built the whole business for the most part during, or at least a, a good chunk of the business during during COVID. Um, but yeah, going back to the question, what I really what I really enjoyed, what I wanted to do was work with the entrepreneurs, help them figure out how to bring new solutions to the market to both help us mitigate climate change, accelerate the energy transition, and address the resilience challenge. And to do it for lots of companies, because obviously O-Power was very successful, but in your current work, you get to replicate that across a lot of different businesses, right? And it's going to take more than one idea, more than one business to really accelerate, you know, these clean energy goals. So I got to think that's a rewarding piece of it as well to do it in mass in a sense. I always say we are like kids in a climate tech candy store, just trying not to make, trying not to make ourselves sick. Uh, and that's sort of a mantra inside the business. And uh, I, whenever I'm trying to recruit someone, I'm like, listen, if you want to go do one thing and go really deep and that's all you want to do, because it's like, I have to, you have to do it, you should go do that. 
But if you're like us and like you're just passionate about a lot of these different areas and want to make an impact across different segments of this, you know, complicated tapestry of problems that we need to solve, then like come to the ad hoc group because that's what we get to do every single day and you will never be bored. It's great. Uh, we talked at the top of the interview about how utilities and policymakers are not necessarily prepared for extreme weather. Uh, what kind of policy do you think would be useful in making them more prepared? So one of the things, you know, we've seen and we've done a lot of work in particular in the wildfire space uh, over the last few years uh, is that we have noticed there are only a few states today that actually require utilities to file wildfire mitigation plans. So yes, right, California, Washington, Oregon, Utah, that's basically it. And those are all really mandated through by legislative action in those states. Uh, and then the regulators have these like processes that they then require utilities to file these plans. Now you say, okay, filing a plan, is that really enough? And it's a starting point. And I think certainly out West, but I would say really everywhere in this country, utilities should be expected to file very concrete, short, medium, long-term plans on how they're going to invest to make the electricity system resilient against all kinds of weather-related risks and challenges that we're obviously going to see more of. Wildfire, hurricanes, floods, ice storms, all of it. Um, and we're just behind. And I was, you know, I watched the fallout of the terrible fires in Hawaii a few months ago and the coverage in the media. And there's a lot of finger pointing at HECO. And then there's a lot of finger pointing at other utilities. And listen, I'm not absolving utilities of blame here for not necessarily being prepared, but they're not alone. They are heavily regulated entities. And when you're heavily regulated, it means that like the regulator and the utility kind of like are in a marriage. And they're both responsible for their success and their failure. And it's always easy for a governor of any state in particular to like, or a politician when the things don't get repaired fast enough to point the finger at the utility. And sometimes that's for good reason. But sometimes, and I would say in this case, in terms of, as I said, we need to, we suffer from a failure of imagination, right? We need the policy community to be as long-term in its thinking as it is around the energy transition. So there are all these ambitious policies, pronouncements about going to zero and getting renewables on the grid. And yes, that's still hard, but like we've got ambitious plans in this country, right? At the federal level now, the state, a lot of the states, ambitious plans. Where is that ambition for resilience? There are examples of ambition, right? The Department of Energy just released three plus billion dollars in grid resilience grants, which is great. And a lot of that is going, right, to utilities, like $100 million in some cases to a couple different utilities are getting those funds. And that's fantastic step forward. 
But we need every state and every legislature and every regulatory body to have resilience as a core expectation and a core investment category, not just reliability, right? We talk about reliability a lot. Utilities and regulators know a lot about reliability, and that is part of the equation here. But this is like, I don't know, I look at resilience to me as like reliability, you know, 2.0. And so thing one, how about we we ensure that all utilities file and develop, right, wildfire and broader resilience plans, and that regulators have the staff to evaluate it and actually work together with utilities to make sure they're making the right investments. I think that would be one of the first things that I'd like to see that is not really not happening at the scale and speed that it needs to. You mentioned that utilities and regulators are in a marriage, so to speak. And I've also heard you say that the policy community and utilities aren't always speaking the same language, which can be difficult for a relationship of any kind of flourish. Uh, what do you mean by that, that they're not speaking the same language? The way that the relationship is sort of set up is antagonistic by design. So it's like an unhappy marriage <laughs> or an unequal partnership, but uh, is the way that it's set up. And what that engenders is sort of by design, a lack of trust on both sides. And when you don't trust your partner, you don't share. And when you don't share, you hide. And when you hide, bad things happen and they happen by surprise. And in any relationship, and I'm a big believer of this, and I saw it's again, maybe a, a mantra inside ad hoc. It's like we have a, a rule, which is like no surprises. Like it's okay for things to go wrong, but we should know there's a chance that they're gonna go wrong and exactly what those things are. And shame on us if like we get surprised, really surprised. And I don't think there is a culture and its culture is formed to some extent by rules. There is not the culture in the relationship in general between regulators and utilities that creates a safe space uh, to have really open and honest conversations about what's required because utilities need the regulators to say yes, to get the return on equity, to make money for their shareholders. And so that means that they're going to be super careful about how they engage their, their regulators. And if they share information with the regulator and it's something that's like revealing a weakness in their system, the regulators today, for the most part, will ding them for it. And we have a, we have a new advisor at, at Ad Hoc uh, whom I'm really excited about, Melissa Semser, who stood up the California wildfire office uh, under Gav Governor Newsom's administration. And I was talking with her recently and she said, one of the things that she's been thinking through is like, how do we create a culture that's more akin to the FAA? When, it, when an airline has an accident, plane goes down, evidently, everything is shared from that airline with the FAA as well as with the other airlines. Because there is a belief in the industry that like, it is in all of our interest for planes not to go down. And so we're not going to hide what happened. We're going to share everything because we all understand in the airline business and in, at the regulatory level that like we want safe skies. Well, we should have safe electricity 
and safe infrastructure and safe utilities. If I'm Excel, uh, I want to learn from PG&E, right? I want to learn from HECO. Like, I want to learn so I can get ahead of these things and not make the mistakes that often are mistakes of omission rather than commission, right? They're like the failure to have imagination to make investments that are forward-looking to mitigate risk that you are predicting you could be exposed to. And we just have not developed that kind of paradigm or relationship yet. And I think we have to. Is is there a role for climate tech startups to play in fostering a more productive relationship? One of the bigger challenges in this industry is, and I've heard you talk about it on the show, is how to get innovation more quickly deployed, right, into the market, especially when it requires, right, engagement with utilities or requires utilities to even be customers. And so where I think the startups can really help, and again, where we try to play a role, is almost like the polyglot of we speak utility, we speak regulator, and we speak startup, and we're going to try to bring you all together to translate and try to meet everyone's core needs and objectives so that we can all move faster together because that's what we need to do. And so I think the startups have a really important perspective to share and they need to share it. And then they need to figure out how to get the utilities and in some cases, the regulators to give them the opportunity to show what they can do to help solve some of these problem. So like, let me throw a couple of examples at you. Like we've been working with Pano AI since they were pre-seed wildfire, right? Tech situational awareness company. They're now working with a number of the major investor owned utilities, also working with municipalities, fire services. Part of what they've done is just gone and educated regulators uh, sometimes with their clients, which I think is always the best by the re- recipe, if you have these clients already, on like how the tech can actually help. And so this summer in Oregon, which is where they have their, their biggest initial deployment with Portland General, they detected they have cameras in uh, on utility infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure, and they use AI machine learning to de- automatically detect smoke to pinpoint the location of a wildfire. They detected a wildfire in Clackamas County outside of Portland, Oregon, 14 minutes sooner than the first 911 call and 19 minutes sooner than the first call that the dispatcher got that actually specified in any helpful sort of way as to where the fire actually was. So that kind of technology can actually save lives and it can preserve uh, a utility infrastructure that might otherwise end up embroiled in a, in a wildfire. And so being able to like give regulators and, and yeah, I say advocates too, like these concrete examples of ways in which these companies can solve some of these problems is important because it is not regulators' job historically to know what's new to know where innovation is coming from and what to do about it, right? Another example, uh, by the way, if you look at what DOE, the grants just came out uh, on the grid innovation resilience, a lot of money went for microgrids, 
even through utilities. And so there's a company in California, Box Power. They have worked closely with PG&E to deploy microgrids in communities that have already been affected by fires where it's cheaper and more resilient to deploy a microgrid to this rural community than keep them on PG&E's infrastructure. And so now they're talking to regulators and utilities and other jurisdictions about like, hey, sometimes it's going to be a better solution to deploy a microgrid than to try to like extend your infrastructure to some remote community that like you're going to have a hard time serving in any sort of reliable or cost-effective way. Jim, you obviously work with a lot of startups in this space. Are there particular technologies uh, or ideas that have you really excited about the future? Yeah, I think what we are seeing a kind of, a, I think, a, an, a, the emergence and sort of a, a mini wave of, of resilience-focused startups that, that, are, that are coming. And, and so, yeah, let me run through, I guess, a few that, you know, that we're, we're seeing, some of which we're working with, some of which we're, you know, of whom we're not. So, you know, one is there's a company called Gridware, which was founded uh, by a guy named Tim Baird, who's out of Australia, where he was like a, a lineman for a utility out there. And... Uh, was inspired to start the company because he saw a gap in the market, which was that like utilities didn't really have a sense of uh, when there was a fault uh, on the system that then caused a problem, caused an outage, caused a fire, et cetera. So he's got a fault detection company uh, that's now working you know, with a number of investor-owned utilities in some big states like California, New York, Colorado, Michigan. So that's what he's doing is, is really interesting. Um, there's uh, there's a, a a relatively new company that uh, recently came out of stealth uh, called Rezome Data, which is uh, founded by a guy named Mish Tadani, who's been in the industry for for quite some time, uh, and is using software and AI to help utilities, help regulators and themselves figure out what is the what is the resilience value of a given investment. And I think this is going maybe to some of the conversation we've had. How do regulators and utilities kind of have this dance and figure out like what's a, you know, how to do something that's innovative? If you don't have the sort of the data and the insights on like what is the what is the return, right, on making an investment in, I don't know, hardening this substation versus hardening this line, how do you know what to invest in and how do you know what to approve if you're a regulator? And so I think that's pretty exciting uh, what what he's doing. Uh, there are there. There's also a um, a new venture studio that was launched months ago by a woman named Katie McDonald, who was at um, NYSERDA for many years in New York, uh, working mostly on mitigation. And I think she was so inspired that resilience was such a big problem, and there were not enough companies uh, emerging in the space that she and another uh, entrepreneur started a venture studio called Tailwind. And what this means is like they are going to incubate ideas uh, of new companies in the space and try to spin them out and get them capital so they can kind of then create new new companies, which I think is really exciting. We call the show With Great Power, which is a nod to the power industry. It's also a famous Spider-Man quote, With Great Power Comes Great Responsibility. So what superpower do you bring to the energy transition? We are, we're the polyglot, we're the, we're the translator between these different stakeholders that, that need to be able to work together to solve 
right, the sort of energy transition, climate resilience challenges. So we speak startup, we speak investor, we speak utility, we speak policymaker, and we speak advocate. And I guess maybe what it comes down to is the superpower is empathy, which is being able to put yourself in the shoes of others, understand what matters to them, and then try to figure out how do we align interests here to get stuff done. And as we say at Ad Hoc, how do we put points on the board? Because if we're not putting points on the board for our clients, we're not putting points on the board for the, for the climate. And that is how we measure success at the Ad Hoc Group. Love it. Well, Jim, thank you very much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much. I uh, appreciate the invitation. Jim Capsis is the CEO and founder of the Ad Hoc Group. With Great Power is produced by GridX in partnership with Latitude Studios. Delivering on the clean energy future is complex. GridX exists to simplify the journey. GridX is the enterprise rate platform that modern utilities rely on to usher in our clean energy future. We design and implement emerging rate structures, and we increase consumer investment in clean energy, all while managing the complex billing needs of a distributed grid. Our production team includes Aaron Hardick, Davon Abouaji, and Stephen Lacey from Latitude Studios. The original theme song is from Sean Marquand. Roy Campanella did the mixing. The GridX production team includes Jenny Barber and me, Brad Langley. If this show is providing value for you, and we really hope it is, please help us spread the word. You can rate your review at Apple and Spotify, or you can share a link with a friend, colleague, or the energy nerd in your life. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brad Langley. 